And now, from Bewley, in the heart of the New Forest, most haunted live at Halloween. Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of Ear Read This, a podcast providing critical introductions to our favourite works of literature. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about The White Company by Arthur Conan Doyle. First serialised in Cornhill magazine in 1891, The White Company was published in book form later that year. Despite having a low profile today, this historical adventure novel was a great success for Conan Doyle, remaining popular and widely read up until the Second World War. Set during the reign of Edward III, The White Company tells the story of Alain Endrickson, who after turning 20 years old, leaves the Abbey of Bewley, where he has been raised, to seek his fortunes in the wider world. He becomes squire to a knight, Sir Nigel Loring, and has adventures fighting pirates before joining up with the company of the title, to serve in the European conflict, later known as the Hundred Years' War. I'm hoping today's show will provide something of a companion piece to our last episode on Robert Louis Stevenson's The Black Arrow. Once again, we are discussing a lesser-known historical work by a famous Edinburgh-connected author. Once again, that author is working from material we have previously looked at through the lens of Shakespeare, and once again, the work was an initial success, but is lesser read and talked about nowadays. Which is an injustice, according to critics like Michael Durder, who praise the novel's bounce and sweetness, adding that in these pages everything is spring-like, full of the sap and exuberance of youth. The author's own estimation of the novel was also quite high. Upon finishing The White Company, Conan Doyle proclaimed aloud, Well, I'll never beat that. Today we'll discuss the novel's critical past and present, Conan Doyle's ambitions as a writer of historical fiction, and what else he has in common with Robert Louis Stevenson. Joining me to discuss The White Company is Andrew Lysett, journalist and biographer of many authors, including Rudyard Kipling, Wilkie Collins, Dylan Thomas and Ian Fleming. Andrew has written two books on Conan Doyle, a celebrated biography in 2007, and a book on the author's travels called Conan Doyle's Wide World, published just last year. Tune in again next time to hear an extended interview with Andrew as we discuss those two books and plenty more besides. I began our conversation by asking Andrew where in the wide world Conan Doyle was when he began writing The White Company. Well, Conan Doyle was coming to the end of his time in South Sea, where he was uh, acting as a, a general practitioner, basically. He had uh, entertained this idea for, you know, since his university days that he was going to be a writer. And when he came to South Sea in 1882, he started writing stories. He started writing stories that he felt would get into magazines. They were about tended to be about aspects of the uncanny. They, they drew quite a bit on his Scottish heritage, to be quite honest, uh, that sort of sense of, of um, there's something else out there. And, you know, he, he developed these and had quite some success in, in selling them to magazines such as Blackwoods, uh, etc. But come the middle of his time in South Sea, approximately 1886, he decided that instead of writing these stories, which were an adjunct to his job as a doctor, he, he said he wanted to get his, his name on the back of a volume. So he wrote this detective story, uh, and the story behind that is, is well known. 
it was um, his first uh, Sherlock Holmes story, the, the a Study in Scarlet. It wasn't immediately taken up sort of as quite as enthusiastically as he had been he had hoped but it was published so he had this slim volume a study in scarlet then he had an idea about what was saleable there was that was always an element in his his kind of conception of the market he was he was quite canny about what what things sold what 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 readers were interested in but um he left uh, his detective on one side for a, a while because uh, he always wanted to write a historical novel. Now, this was something that he had been sort of a long time in the making. It stemmed from the enthusiasm that his mother, Mary Doyle, had given him for historical material, historical novels, and particularly for the Middle Ages. She inculcated in him a respect for the chivalric values of the Middle Ages. Mm. And this was something that Conan Doyle was writing about in letters to his mother, you know, even when he was at school. You know, he had this sort of sense of the, the importance of chivalry. And he developed uh, his sense of it as something within history. Um, mm. he, he read widely. He read about the Middle Ages and, um, you know, that was the way that um, he came to develop the idea of the White Company. Like the Black Arrow, the White Company tells the story of a young man's journey to becoming a knight. Alain leaves Bewley on the same day as Hordle John is expelled for unseemly behaviour. As the abbot says, we have cast off our foulest weed and choicest blossom in the space of 12 hours. But Hordle John and Alain are destined to cross paths rough and uncouth John eventually becoming Alain's squire. To contrast Shakespeare's cast of royalty, earls and dukes in plays like Henry VI, Stevenson's Black Arrow gave us the Wars of the Roses from the perspective of characters outside of the nobility. Here, Conan Doyle gives us a similar on-the-ground view of the Hundred Years' War. Aside from major characters like Hordle John and the veteran archer Samkin Aylward, we also get a sense of the wider populace, droves of incoherent Yorkshire Dalesmen, and a memorable portrait of life in the Scottish army, where every man fills himself with girdle cakes and sits up all night to blow upon the toodle pipe. Although the status of noble characters like Sir Nigel is treated reverentially throughout the book, something that Alain's own happy promotion to Sockman and Knight supports, the White Company itself is a disparate and rowdy gang of mercenaries. Now, that was based on the historical white company, a, a band of freebooters or mercenaries who operated in on the continent during the uh, Hundred Years' War in the 14th century, mm. uh, originally associated with the historical figure, Sir John Hawkwood. Conan Doyle adapted this concept of a group of mercenaries and sort of gave it a more fictional form in that he had his characters join a sort of uh, a, a band of, of, of mercenaries. So mm. his main hero is mm. somebody called Alan Edrickson, who was raised as a novice monk in the monastery, uh, or was it Abbey, Abbey at, at Bewley. Conan Doyle was, uh, in the course of this, he was drawing on a lot of his sort of local knowledge. He was, he was fascinated by 
what went on in Hampshire. He used to go down into the New Forest. And Alain, this chap who had been a, a novice monk, left the, the abbey at Bewley and had a series of picaresque adventures, which I, I actually think are, are, are some of the best things in, in the, the novel because they mm. kind of get the, the, the sort of character of life in England in that period. Uh, he then joins up with a local sort of member of the gentry, Sir Nigel Loring, who mm. has served in France in the basically the, the Hundred Years' War. And he is loosely attached to the White Company. So Alan Edrickson gets to go over to France and to par participate in various adventures that um, sort of bring him close to the concept of what it was like to be this kind of mercenary in that period in the 14th century. Conan Doyle spent a lot more time on the White Company than he usually did for his books. This was partly due to the extensive research he undertook for the novel, but also because he was enjoying himself. When asked in 1921 by Herbert Ashley which book he had derived the most pleasure writing, Conan Doyle responded, The White Company. I was young and full of the first joy of life and action, and I think I got some of it into my pages. Holmes fans might be surprised that Conan Doyle referred to the White Company is the most complete, satisfying and ambitious thing I have ever done. Was he at all hurt by the by the disproportionate response to the book? <laughs> um, well, he had this ambition from a long time, as, as I've said, to write a, a great historical novel. And um, A Study in Scarlet, his detective story, was just a kind of something that he did off the top of his head, if you like. And, you know, he had had this this desire to, to write something that, I mean, perhaps it was that he wanted to impress his mother, you know, because she'd given him this enthusiasm for history and for the Middle Ages. And that was a, a sort of um, ambition, um, you know, a, a feeling that he had throughout his career that his real calling was in historical literature. And that was what he wanted to do. Rather, So that explains why after doing two series of the Sherlock Holmes stories in 1893, by 1893, he decided to, to kill off Sherlock Holmes, you know. Mm. And that's a phenomenon that you hear of in connection with other authors who've kind of created what perhaps they think are sort of rather ephemeral uh, heroes such as Sherlock Holmes. I mean, obviously, <laughs> as far as Conan Doyle was concerned, it was um, Sherlock Holmes who was to be the, the, the longer lasting and, you know, to have the most uh, enthusiastic um, support and, you know, more enthusiastic um, uh, following was going mm. to be Sherlock Holmes. So just to, you know, sort of backtrack, Sherlock Holmes hadn't really come on the scene when Conan Doyle started thinking about the White Company. Well, mm. he'd been thinking about the White Company for a while, but he actually started to think about it seriously in 1889, which was a couple of years after a study in Scarlet. And basically, he hadn't really much intention of doing another Sherlock Holmes story at that time. Conan Doyle was on the whole irritated by the critical response to his novel. He wrote about the reviews of the book to his mother. They are none of them hostile, and yet I am disappointed. They treat it too much as a mere book of adventure as if it were an ordinary boy's book. 
Whereas I have striven to draw the exact types of character of the folk then living, and have spent much work and pains over it, which seems so far to be quite unappreciated by the critics. They do not realise how conscientious my work has been. According to Martin Booth, one critic enraged Conan Doyle by condemning his mentioning a carriage as having existed in 1367. In fact, it had existed. Conan Doyle had found the fact in his researches. As you would expect of a writer with a scientific mind like Conan Doyle's, his research was meticulous, as he had demonstrated already in earlier historical efforts. He's beginning to make a bit of a mark in London. Uh, he's published um, in 1889 another historical novel, Micah Clark, which is a story about uh, a character who gets involved in Monmouth's rebellion in the uh, 17th century. Conan Doyle put a lot of work into the sort of getting the historical background for that right. It's an interesting book in that it demonstrates something of Conan Doyle's changing sort of religious alignment because he'd been brought up a Roman Catholic, but he had begun to, well, at, while at university in Edinburgh, to put that on one side. And he was becoming, I suppose it must be said, more attached to the Protestant religion because Micah Clark is very much a novel which kind of promotes the tolerance that he believes is associated with uh, a certain form of, of Protestantism, as opposed to somewhat oppressive nature of the Roman Catholicism that he was he was brought up with. You know, on the basic level, uh, Micah Clark is a plea for religious toleration. The White Company's own plea is declared in its diverting inscription. To the hope of the future, writes Conan Doyle, the knitting together of the English-speaking races this little chronicle of their common ancestry is inscribed. This hoped-for knitting together was something Conan Doyle believed was critical. During a visit to America, he said, I believe the English-speaking races must either coalesce, in which case the future of the world is theirs, or else they will eternally neutralise each other and be overshadowed by some more compact people as the Russians and the Chinese. Despite the jibes at Yorkshiremen and Scots, this quest for unity is felt throughout the novel. Of all things Alain witnesses in the world, nothing is more strange than the hate which class appeared to bear to class. Other elements of the novel rather fly in the face of this democratic wistfulness. Firstly, its description of Edward III, which falls over itself in wonderment and veneration. War-worn and weather-beaten, with a broad, thoughtful forehead, and eyes which shone brightly from under his fierce and overhung brows. He rode his horse with the careless grace of a man whose life had been spent in the saddle. In common garb, his masterful face and flashing eye would have marked him as one who was born to rule. But now, with his silken tunic powdered with golden fleur-de-lis, his velvet mantle lined with the royal miniver, and the lions of England stamped in silver upon his harness, None could fail to recognise the noble Edward, most warlike and powerful of all the long line of fighting monarchs who had ruled the Anglo-Norman race. As for those unfortunates born outside of the fold of this common ancestry, their appearance in the book elicits a shiver of horror at their alien variety. In one epic set piece, Alain and company are attacked by pirates, described as follows. In heavy clusters they hung about the forecastle, all ready for a spring, faces white, 
Faces brown, faces yellow, and faces black. Fair Norsemen, swarthy Italians, fierce rovers from the Levant, and fiery Moors from the Barbary States, of all hues and countries, and marked solely by the common stamp of wild beast ferocity. Towards the end of the novel, the company encounter a prophetess, wife of the Breton knight, Sir Bertrand de Guesquin. In the company of Alain and Sir Nigel, the Lady Tiffane foretells evil times coming upon England, the loss of all the French lands currently under Plantagenet rule. But when the Lady ventures a little further out across the seas of time, she gets a shock at the sight of the future British Empire. My God, she cried, what is this that is shown me? Whence come they, these peoples, these lordly nations, these mighty countries which rise up before me? I look beyond, and others rise, and yet others, far and farther to the shores of the uttermost waters. They crowd, they swarm, the world is given to them, and it resounds with the clang of their hammers and the ringing of their church bells. They call them many names, and they rule them this way or that, but they are all English, for I can hear the voices of the people. On I go, and onwards overseas where man hath never sailed, and I see a great land under new stars and a stranger sky, and still the land is England. Where have her children not gone? What have they not done? Conan Doyle reiterates his plea boldly in his final sentences, underscoring the militaristic potential of this knitting together. The sky may darken, and the clouds may gather, and again the day may come when Britain may have sore need of her children, on whatever shore of the sea they be found. Shall they not muster at her call? Um, so Conan Doyle has just begun to make a mark with sort of combination of his Sherlock Holmes stories, story, A Study in Scarlet, mm. several other stories that he's written for magazines, Millen's Magazine, Blackwood's Magazine, the Cornhill Magazine. He's invited to, to London for dinner with an American publisher, J.M. Stoddart, uh, who's the owner of and principal editor of something called Lippincott's Magazine in uh, Philadelphia, which is a great outlet for sort of British authors that who publish and they get paid well and stuff. So he is invited to dinner with Stoddart and one of the other guests is another up and coming writer, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde goes away and writes a short novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Conan Doyle goes away and does likewise. He sort of wonders what he's going to write about, you know, for this magazine and decides to to go back to Sherlock Holmes. He's going to go back to Sherlock Holmes, which is going to be his second outing for Sherlock Holmes. And that is the sign of four. That's in 1889, the start of 1889. Mm. He had been thinking at that stage of writing this novel, which we referred to, um, The White Company. But he puts that up on one side for a, a while, uh, while he, he writes this um this short novel, uh, The Sign of Four. And then he goes back to the White Company. He's decided that he's going to put a lot of research into it. He, he arranges to go on a, a sort of a short holiday with some friends to the New Forest. And he goes to a, a place called Emery Down on the edge of the New Forest, just, just beyond Lyndhurst. 
he takes with him books such as a biography by a now forgotten writer called William Warburton on Edward III. And he mm. takes uh, a sort of historical classic, um, Henry Hallam's Europe during the Middle Ages. And he concocts this uh, extraordinary story about this young man who joins the, the White Company. During his adventures with the company, the young Alain comes across a variety of famous historical characters, the bulk of whom are glimpsed in cameos or throwaway references. The Black Prince is, of course, a critical player in the campaigns and led the English at the Battle of Nachera, setting of the novel's climax. We've already seen his father, Edward III, and there are mentions of the king's other son, who regularly puts a face in during these podcasts, John of Gaunt. We hear reference to a little sleek, fat clerk called Chaucer, the poison of Wycliffe, and the king's open secret of a mistress, Alice Perez. Sir Nigel Loring, a major character, about whom Conan Doyle would write a prequel in 1906, was himself a real knight. Although little is known about his life, he had dealings with the Black Prince, having fought with him at Poitiers, and was an original member of the Order of the Garter. Our main character, Alain, and the woman he loves, Maud, daughter of Sir Nigel, are fictional, but we hear that Alain goes on to serve in the courts of King Richard II and Henry IV. One of, we probably come on to this, but one of the, the reasons that I got into writing about uh, Curtin Doyle was that uh, I was lucky to find uh, that the archive of the Conan Doyle family was put up for auction in 2004, when I was just beginning to think about writing a biography of Conan Doyle. And one of the items in this sale at Christie's was a great sort of series of notebooks about Conan Doyle's uh, thinking when he was um, beginning to, to write The White Company. So you have books with wonderful drawings by Conan Doyle showing knights in their armor and he's wow. sort of he's 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 uh, he's drawn them himself and he's also annotated them so you have knights with their epaulier with their pick spurs and uh, jupons um, often they're sort of vaguely french uh, names because you know a lot of the, the sort of background of this was uh, continental and Conan Doyle incorporates that in his novel The White Company um, you know it is a treasure trove of material if you want to to know about uh, you know how a knight operates in the middle ages at that particular moment. Getting the history right was of the utmost importance to Conan Doyle he was proud to say that the White Company and its prequel, Sir Nigel, together formed an accurate picture of that great age. And as a single piece of work, they formed the most complete, satisfying and ambitious thing I have ever done. According to another of Conan Doyle's biographers, Martin Booth, during his stay in the New Forest, the author immersed himself in the mood of the place, walking the sylvan lanes, visiting the Rufus Stone at the site of the murder of William Rufus, the 11th century King of England, and the ruined Cistercian Abbey at Bewley. This dedication to accuracy has led to complaints from the critics. Hugh Kingsmill, for instance, wrote that none of the persons in the White Company can stir a step without bumping into material out of Conan Doyle's notebooks. In 1892, Conan Doyle accepted that, as a rule, where historical novels fail is in the fact that there is too much history and too little novel. 
something he had forgotten 14 years later when reading reviews of Sir Nigel and once again riled by the critics, praising the novel as an adventure story and not as a work of serious historical fiction. How did the White Company do on publication? Well, he didn't actually struggle to Mm. get it uh, published, but he had to rely on a friend, uh, a writer called James Payne, to to get it into um, a magazine. I think it was Blackwood's. No, the Cornhill, sorry, get into mm. the Cornhill magazine. And then he was able to get it, it uh, published in book form. Uh, not until 1891 was it actually published in, in book form because in the intervening period, The Sign of Four, originally called The Sign of the Four, mm. uh, had been published. And um, you know he'd enjoyed some success, some renewed success with Sherlock Holmes. So when he came to give up his his practice as a um, a doctor in Portsmouth and he, he was going up to to London to be closer to the literary world but at the same time he hoped that he could develop his his um, his career as a writer so this was in 1891 that he actually he left Portsmouth in December 1890 and he he, he went to, he wanted to, to specialize as a doctor in ophthalmology. So um, he went to Vienna, uh, where he was going to study eye medicine. And then he came back and took up a sort of practice in Upper Wimpole Street. At the same time, the publisher, George Nunes, had just started a new monthly magazine, sort of general interest monthly magazine called Strand Magazine. And Conan Doyle, as a result of his growing success, not, you know, he wasn't, wasn't a great success, but, you know, he was beginning to get known. He'd got himself an agent, one of the first kind of literary agents, uh, somebody, a Scotsman called A.P. Watt. Mm. Watt sort of talked to, to Doyle and they came up w- with the idea that he would write a series of stories about Sherlock Holmes for this new magazine, The Strand Magazine. So um, that's, that's, that's what happened. He started writing, I think the first of them was Scandal in Bohemia, which was published uh, in 1891. And then he just kept on writing these stories. After that, I think it was A Case of Identity, Redheaded League, etc. Conan Doyle was continuing to write uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. And it wasn't actually, as I said, until 1891 that he managed to sort of get the White Company published. You asked about the sort of reaction to it. Well, by that time, Conan Doyle was enjoying significant success as um, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And uh, consequently, his efforts with the White Company sort of were, were, were slightly eclipsed. You know, he'd started writing the the Sherlock Holmes stories for Strand Magazine in in April um, 1891. The Scandal in Bohemia, the first of his stories for Strand Magazine, wasn't published until July. He'd been working on The White Company, and it was actually published in serial form during that period, but it wasn't actually published in book form until, well, in America, it was published in in August of that year, in Britain in October by the company Smith Elder. So it was a sort of parallel exercise. He was doing the the Sherlock Holmes Holmes stories, 
which proved very successful. At the same time, he was doing what he really wanted to do, which was to write his great historical novel, um, which came out at roughly the same time. So you get you get Conan Doyle kind of juggling, not just, well, he quickly gave up his medical career when Sherlock Holmes took off. So, you know, by the middle of 1891, he'd more or less stopped being a doctor. But, you know, he was then wondering, you know, to what extent he was going to concentrate on Sherlock Holmes and what to what extent was he going to to write these great historical novels that you know he yeah. saw as his calling which he felt that you know that was where you know his knowledge and his background and his you know he had this great admiration for the um the novelist um Robert Louis Stevenson and uh, mm. you know he saw himself somewhat in the the tradition, the romantic tradition, in the sort of um, sense of romance as an adventure, of of Stevenson. I think he sent a copy of um, the White Company to Stevenson, and um, you know that was a kind of measure by which he he gauged his novels, um, his historical novels. Although the critical reception disappointed him, Conan Doyle was proved astute in guessing at what was saleable. Once the original three-decker version of The White Company sold out, the novel went through over 50 one-part editions. In 1891, Conan Doyle received £250 for the book and a further £200 for the rights to serialisation, followed by £125 for the American rights. According to Martin Booth, The White Company is the most widely published historical novel written in the English language apart from Ivanhoe. It's funny that you mention him having an affinity with uh, Robert Louis Stevenson because they, among other similarities, they both seem to have had the most success with the stuff that they considered they dashed off as opposed <laughs> to the, 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 long, the long works that they sort of slaved over and they, they don't seem to correlate with those ones being the hits. Yeah. Um, well, Stevenson, you know, was be, was somebody that Conan Doyle had read as a child and, you know, he'd always looked up to and sort of seen as a model for the kind of book that he wanted to to write. I, I'm pretty sure, you know, he I, um, I seem to recall that, you know, he, he corresponded with Stevenson. And uh, unlike, I mean, I also wrote a book about uh, Rudyard Kipling, um, mm. who was in some ways pretty much a contemporary of of all of those two, you know. But um, Kipling was a great fan of Stevenson, who clearly was a model for writers who wanted to write what they thought were adventure stories, romances. It was the the way that these writers, and I'm going to put Kipling and Conan Doyle together there, it was a sort of manly kind of response to what they saw as the kind of problems of the age, because they saw the emergence of decadent writing, they saw things that they, they they've understood well enough, but they didn't really have much in, in common with symbolist writing and things like that. And there was definitely a, a kind of divide between the robust adventure story writing, which was actually associated also with another um, writer that uh, both well, Kipling in particular was associated with Henley, who had his kind of coterie of known as the Henley's Regatta um, that published in 
the Scots Observer, I think it was then later called the National Observer, uh, you know, this was very different from the Blue Book, the sort of writing associated with Oscar Wilde, for example, although yeah. Oscar Wilde and, Sh- and Conan Doyle actually had a great respect for each other. And, uh, you know, they, mm. um, Oscar Wilde stated outright, you know, his respect for Conan Doyle's work. More recent critics of The White Company have made a case for the novel. Michael Durder is one who has stressed what it demonstrates of Conan Doyle's literary range. Since the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories is so adept at plain speaking, writes Durder, it's good to be reminded that he also commanded the high style. And there is plenty of romantic flair in the novel. Here is Alain at the end of his journey, delirious and wounded. Little could he ever remember of that wild ride. Half-conscious, but ever with the one thought beating in his mind, he goaded the horse onwards, rushing swiftly down deep ravines over huge boulders, across the edges of black abysses. Dim memories he had of beetling cliffs, of a group of huts with wandering faces at the doors, of foaming, clattering water, and of a bristle of mountain beaches. Stray details of scenery catch the eye, the grey and pensive heron, for instance, swollen with trout and dignity. Martin Booth calls The White Company the best medieval novel in English literature apart from Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe. And Conan Doyle was at least some way vindicated in his people-rallying sign-off, as Booth relates. When Britain was blockaded in the Second World War and paper was scarce, the government especially ensured that sufficient stocks of The White Company were available to keep it in print. It was probably, I mean, in retrospect... I mean, I, I guess I would point people to it if uh, they asked me if they, you know, to get a sense of of Conan Doyle as a historical novelist, I would point them to uh, the White Company because it has it has wonderful descriptions. It is full of historical knowledge. It's mm. got a rollicking story. It's got great sort of set battle scenes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's quite a, a good you know, character study of this young man and, you know, his involvement with the war. You know, although Conan Doyle was to do other historical novels, historical stories, I mean, probably uh, I mentioned that he'd done uh, Michael Clarke about the Monmouth Rebellion. He would do the the um, series of stories later on, uh, the Brigadier Gerard stories that he sort of got involved with in 1896, uh, which were about the Napoleonic Wars, basically. So he was pretty wide ranging. 1896 was a period when Conan Doyle had given up on Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so he was looking for something new to turn in his um, his hand to. So mm. you know, he, he went back to uh, his historical novels. He wrote a big rambling historical novel called The Refugees. Uh, Then he did um, The Exploits of Brigadier Gerard, which came out in 1896. Uh, Rodney Stone. It wasn't until 1901, after he'd Mm. been involved in in what is now called the South African War, the Boer War, and he wrote the, The Hound of the Baskervilles, that he got back into Sherlock Holmes, and then he quickly kind of decided that um, Sherlock Holmes had a future. I think he was encouraged mm. by his his agent, you know, who kind of realised that Sherlock Holmes was the how he was going to make money and uh, yeah. continued to do so. 
That's all for today, folks. A huge thank you to my special guest, Andrew Lysett. Remember to tune in again next time to hear more about Andrew's work, and you'll find links to his books in the episode description box below. Until then, happy reading.